Good. Um, some considerations on Vedanupassana, the contemplation of feeling tone as a crucial ingredient in learning to stop the carousel of the mind. Yeah? Satipatthanas have different jobs. Kayanupassana, the contemplation of body, has uh, the major job is settling the baby, calming the mind, calming the body. Vedanupassana has a major job. This is learning the connection that starts with sense contact, leaves us with pleasant resonances, unpleasant resonances, and galvanizes into us into forms of action, either of liking, desiring, reaching out and grasping, or disliking, uh, being averse, pushing away uh, the whole spectrum from denial to hate, to uh, just rejection, to not wanting to be with. So, the point is understanding what triggers and how this process unfolds, because at various stages in this process, we have more or less power to actually uh, take some directive influence on this process. If we're not happy with the results, it is necessary that we find out where we can begin to influence how the mind responds and how this chain unfolds. We are not condemned to run through the whole gamut of habituated reactions towards a pleasant stimulus or towards an unpleasant stimulus. It's necessary to understand that all Vedana arise on the basis of sense contact, be that the five outer senses or be that the mind base. Um, therefore, it makes sense to take as object of our awareness ways in which sense contact trigger off pleasant feeling and unpleasant feeling tone. Yeah? That's the whole point of Vedana practice. Um, you know, it's this, it's a fairly crude attempt to stem the tide when you're actually already angry. You know, it's a lot more easy to find out when the mind moves from being reasonably placid into the state of anger. And somewhere in that process, if we catch that early, it is like with sleepiness. If you catch it early, all it takes is three mindful in-breaths and then you're, some energy flows into the area that has uh, become, become sleepy. And the same is with uh, anger or with desire. When we catch it early, then it doesn't take a lot of effort to um, instill some realism or perspective in there. But if we catch it late, the thing has gathered momentum. We have uh, not a little uh, feeling tone that we need to hold mindfully, but we have a fully blown, outgrown, pretty fat emotion going on, possibly. Yeah. So. To do something with this is a lot more muscular, a lot more hard work, and possibly a lot longer um, an activity than, say, just uh, seeing a flicker of desire arise, noticing this desire, uh, and in a sort of smiling way put it down. Recognizing the desire nature of the mind and recognizing our own freedom, not having to act on this desire nature. Um, and instead doing something else. Yeah. 
So that's one of the reasons why Vedanupassana is important. That's why we're actually learning to find in our experience that trigger moment when a sense contact produces this this kind of pendulum swing. We're not doing this as an academic exercise. As I have believed believe, uh, to have said, the, our habitual, in other words, involuntary attention is largely governed and ruled by uh, Vedana, yeah, the seeking of pleasant Vedana and the avoiding of unpleasant Vedana. This is the major um, determining factor for most of our involuntary attention. And quite a bit of the voluntary as well, you know, because sometimes we're not just falling back on a default mechanism of seeking pleasure and avoiding displeasure. Sometimes we're actually bloody-mindedly pursuing this. You know. So that comes on top. Although we have a better chance there. Uh, this is no longer a matter of establishing the place where we have a choice. This is now, if, we, if we're speaking of conscious uh, attention or of deliberate or voluntary attention, then um, we need to work on a, on a different level with that if we find that it is. Um, we need to work on a level of understanding and ideology or perspective. So I wanted to um, give you some bits and pieces from the texts, which I think are quite interesting. And since they are buried somewhere in the depth of the Anguttara Nikaya, I thought I wanted to fish it out. There's a small passage in a very otherwise interesting text, very terse text, called Nibedika Sutta. It's in the Book of Sixes. Um, and this text has um, a number of things to say about how, how to practice. It's called the Penetrative Discourse. I will teach you a penetrative exposition of the Dhamma. Listen closely and uh, attend. I will speak. Thank you. And then he goes through sensual pleasures and feeling tone should be understood. The source and origin of feeling tone should be understood. The diversity of feeling tone should be understood. The result of feeling tone should be understood. The cessation of feeling tone should be understood. Stood, the way leading to the cessation of feeling tone should be understood. Uh, I skip a huge chunk here because there are many other bits in there. When it was said, uh, feeling tone should be understood. The way leading to the cessation of, da, 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 until the way leading to the cessation of feeling tone should be understood. For what reason was it said? There are amongst these three forms of feeling tone: pleasant feeling, painful feeling, and neither painful nor pleasant feeling. And what is the source and origin of feeling tone? Contact is the source and origin of feeling tone. And what is the diversity of feeling tone? There is worldly pleasant feeling, there is spiritual pleasant feeling, there is worldly painful feeling, there is spiritual painful feeling, there is worldly neither painful nor pleasant feeling, there is spiritual neither painful nor pleasant feeling. This is called the diversity of feelings. And what is the result of feeling? Feeling tone. One produces an individual existence that corresponds with whatever feeling one experiences and which may be the consequence either of merit or demerit. This is called the result of feeling tone. And what is the cessation of feeling tone? With the cessation of contact, there is the cessation of feeling tone. 
The Noble Eightfold Path is the way leading to the cessation of feeling tone, namely, and then, you know, right understanding, uh, right intention, right uh, speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right uh, mindfulness, and right uh, unification. Yeah, when monks, a noble disciple, thus understands feeling tone, the source and origin of feeling tone, the diversity of feeling tone, the result of feeling tone, the cessation of feeling tone, and the way leading to the cessation of feeling tone, he or she understands this penetrative spiritual life to be the cessation of feeling tone. So, let's look at some of this. Let's begin with the first statement. Feeling tone should be understood. That's the, that's the crucial bit. Yeah. Should be understood. The source and origin of feeling tone should be understood. Diversity of feeling tone should be understood. Result of feeling tone should be understood. The cessation of feeling tone should be understood. The way leading to cessation of feeling tone should be understood. So there's a, a, a number of things in there. Understanding the connection, obviously, between feeling tone and the rest of our experience, namely the bit that is before there, contact, and the bit that follows after, which is emotional and volitional. And feeling tone occupies a crucial central ground in there. It is neither volitional, yeah, uh, nor is it emotional. Just your sensitivity to pleasant and unpleasant things is not an emotion. And it is more than contact. Yeah. In itself, it has no willful component. But it gives, obviously, uh, chances are big that it gives rise to volitional content. For an untrained mind, it is highly likely that something pleasant will be echoed in the system by a wish that this continue, a wish that this be stronger, a wish that this stay with me. Yeah? It is very clear that it is not the thing in itself that is pleasant, that is a problem, but it is our reaction to this, or our resonance with this. Reaction would be more precise as a term. So the Buddha is quite clear, the problem is not our sensitivity, nor is it that things are beautiful or attractive to us. The problem is how we habitually respond to such things that we cannot hold beauty without wanting to own it, keep it. Um, yeah, the whole program. Yeah. And correspondingly to unpleasant things, there is no law that says we have to react to unpleasant things with disgust, with uh, contempt, with aversion, with uh, the impulse to push it away. And yet, it is probably realistic to admit that most of us do react in that way when met with unpleasant things. And it's part of the meditative task to widen the leeway we have. Yeah? So the, the idea is that you can experience pleasant things without grasping at them, that you can experience unpleasant things without rejecting them. The idea of meditation is not that everything is totally the same to you. Okay. It's also not that nice things are just bad for you and you should stay away from them. That's also not the message. The message, uh, let me say, the message before we go back to the feeling is 
couched in a terse little verse, which I have in two translations here, in the same text. It says, it is the passion for his resolve. The passion for his resolves is a man's sensuality, not the beautiful sensual pleasures found in the world. The passion for her resolve, for her resolves is a woman's sensuality. The beauties remain as they are in the world, while the wise in this regard subdue their desire. I read you the same thing again in a different translation. They are not sensual pleasures, the pretty things in the world. A person's sensual pleasure is lustful intention. The pretty things remain just as they are in the world, but the wise remove the desire for them. So I think that states fairly clearly where the issue is. It is not that we need to avoid beautiful or pretty things. It is not that we need to control our life so that nothing unbeautiful or unpretty can take place. But we need to work on the subjective side of the process. And this is here what our text calls Sankaparaga, the, um, the, the lustful intention or uh, what Tanisiro calls the passion for his resolves. Yeah. I'll post that on the notice board so you can have a look at it. It's definitely worth having a look at it. Um, this is at once disturbing and freeing because we don't need to actually fix the world. We only need to fix us. We don't need to prevent the world from being beautiful or attractive to us. We don't need to uh, sanitize the world from uh, and purging it from anything that might uh, offend our senses or our mind. All we need to do is work on the reactiveness. That is where our freedom lies. That is where our possibility for awakening and happiness lies. Um, I think that is a very, uh, that's a squarely psychological message. Yeah. Um, while our habits would incline us to direct attention outwards and seek both gratification and control and safety in this outward movement. The contemplative traditions tell us, both you know, the yogic tradition and the Buddhist tradition, uh, in slightly different terms, that both freedom and happiness do not come from fixing the story we're in, but they do come from how we relate to that story, yeah? to rephrase this problem in a slightly different way. Yeah. We do not necessarily have much say in what's happening, but we always have a say in how we relate to what's happening. That's a big, big difference. You can't choose what kind of body you have. I mean, even your choices regarding your government are reasonably uh, limited and if once you get the right guys in you know you have no guarantee that they behave rightly yeah I mean we all know this um, you have no choice whether your loved one gets a diagnosis or not yeah we have often very little say in crucial matters that determine our happiness or our safety or our well-being uh, but we do have continually a say in how we relate to this. And it is that capacity to respond that shapes us in the long run, shapes our life a lot more than whether we got the nice bit or we were on the loo when they passed out the sweets or so, yeah? 
That is why this insistence on learning to be with Vedana, both acknowledging him, recognizing your own response to Vedana, and uh, learning to um, lengthen the wick in some way. Yeah, you want to have a longer wick bef before things go off in you, before your neurons fire. You want to be able to hold an impulse and consent to that impulse because you have held it in the light of your values, in the light of your experience, and then you may consider actually enacting it or you may consider putting it down. Let me go back to the text because I wanted to go a little bit more into this terse passages uh, when it says the three feeling tones, pleasant feeling tone, unpleasant feeling tone, and neither uh, Painful nor pleasant feeling tone is obvious, yeah. Dukkha Vedana, Sukha Vedana, uh, Neva Dukkha Ma Nasukha Vedana. Then we have um, the source and origin of feeling, contact is the source and origin of feeling tone, which is also, I believe, fairly verifiable. The diversity of feelings. There is worldly pleasant feeling, spiritual pleasant feeling. Let me say something. The Pali term for this is Amisa, which means literally flesh. Yeah, so there is carnal pleasant feeling and carnal unpleasant feeling. Meant by this are two things: the figure, uh, the the um, the direct meaning of the term re refers to the five outer senses and the sixth sense as being uh, amisa. They have to do with our um, sense, with our immediate sense base. Yeah? things of the eyes, things of the ear, things of the nose, things of the tongue, things of the body, and things of mind. Consider the object of your eye, of your field of vision, are things you can see that have shape, that have color and contour. Yeah? The term rupa initially means that which stands against in the field of vision. The object in the sense field of hearing is obviously sound. The object in the sense field of uh, the nose is uh, olfactory, yeah? smells. The object of the sense field of the tongue is gustatory, is tastes and juice. And the object of the body is more complicated. Yeah? We have a, a number of, we have tactile experiences which generally involve our skin. We have interoceptive experience which generally does not involve our skin but it comes together through a number of complicated neural um, structures that have something to do with our motor and our kinesthetic sense. Then we have proprioceptive experience, which means that parts of our body know where other parts are. Um, and there's a few other things, you know, the conductivity of your skin and uh, the experience of temperature. And uh, most of these uh, have much to do with our skin, experience of pressure, for example. But some of them have not to do with our skin. They have to do with our motor system. They have to do with uh, our joints. You know? Say proprioception comes together through a rather complicated pattern of internal uh, neural functioning. So this, the objective equivalent in the sense sphere of mind would be things like um, image, concept, um, thought, 
all the types of thought, memorized thought, fantasized thought, but the activity of conceiving, the activity of imagining, the activity of uh, concept forming uh, would be the objective correlate to the sixth sense sphere, which in Buddhism is squarely physical, yeah? which in Buddhism is not transcended as opposed to, say, Western philosophy, where, you know, at least since Kant, this is uh, transcendent. So thinking in Buddhism is a sensory experience. Whether you want to eat a hamburger or whether you want to recite uh, Rilke's sonnets to Orpheus, both are sensory experiences. It's important to know that. That has some considerable consequences because it means that you cannot think yourself out of the bag, yeah. as Western philosophy has consistently tried to. As long as it's thought, it's basically, A, it, it has an embodied component, <laughs> and B, it is, uh, it is considered to be worldly, it is fleshly. Yeah. So you have Niramisa, <clears throat> which the Niramisa part would technically refers to the Rupa, um, to Rupa Jhana experiences. Yeah. So it's jhanic experiences that would be non-fleshly because they're no longer sensory based. That's the direct meaning, the figurative or the metaphorical meaning of um, amisa, worldly, and uh, niramisa, spiritual. You have to think this with quote, with scare quotes. Yeah, is that it is niramisa is directed to not material things, yeah? So say the Dharma would be an object of Niramisa contemplation. Now, when you have pleasant worldly feelings, obviously these are pleasant feelings in our six sense bases. Yeah? You have unpleasant stuff, unpleasant Amisa feeling, which would be unpleasant experience in our six sense bases. Anything that touches your system and that you respond to with an experience of unpleasant. Uh, worldly, spiritual, uh, pleasant feelings would be maybe uh, inspiration by the Dhamma. Spiritual, unpleasant feeling would be maybe the grief you experience through renunciation. Yeah? Renunciation doesn't just make you happy, as you may have noticed. Sometimes one has a say in renunciation, and then uh, that can feel quite empowering. Yeah? And sometimes one doesn't have a say in renunciation. One just, it just hurts, and one grieves. Much about Growth, much of letting go, has to do with grieving, and you know sometimes you you have the strength and the faith to open your hand and you know do this, and sometimes you just wait till the universe bends open all your fingers, yeah, you know? or you just kind of get exhausted hanging on to things that you don't want that you don't want to let go, but you just somehow can't. You go beyond. That's why after we have had a hell of a time, sometimes we have breakthroughs. Yeah? After everything went wrong that possibly could go wrong, after all my tricks um, have not worked. You know, I've shot the last arrow from my, whatever this is called here. Yeah? I've eaten my last dog from my, from, well, I've eaten my last husky, you know, and I'm still not at the end. You know, sometimes we have breakthroughs, yeah. amazingly, counter to all our experience and counter to our expectations sometimes, because in the face of so much struggle, something in us lets go. Yeah. 
You may have had that when you learned a skill, say tennis or skiing or Aikido or so. I, I remember I was practicing Aikido for many years and this is really great. And I had, um, I learned a lot about my body in, in this. And I was always baffled that whenever, before I had a breakthrough, it was particularly miserable. You know, I felt particularly incompetent, particularly rigid, particularly clueless, particularly ineffective. And in some way, most of what was a profound softening uh, or a, a, a deep connection with the principle was preceded by a particularly miserable state. Uh, so maybe your growth pattern grows different. I don't want to judge for myself, conclude for myself to you, but there is a there are different forms of practice, as you may have heard. You know, there is the the kipabhinya sukhapatipata, the quick progress with, uh, with a happy practice or pleasant practice. And then there is the quick progress with a painful practice. Yeah. That's the kipabhinya dukkapatipata. And then is unfortunately the slow progress with a happy uh, practice. And then there is a slow progress with a painful practice. So, so that doesn't necessarily say uh, that what you're doing is not working. Yeah? We, we know that our perspective on ourselves and our actual, actual progress are often widely divergent. Unfortunately, we can waste a lot of time feeling good. Yeah? And the really bad thing is we can also waste a lot of time feeling bad. Actually, that's true as well. Yeah? So suffering alone doesn't, is not ennobling per se. You have to suffer more elegantly, you know, <laughs> more wisely, more economically, more <laughs> gracefully. You know, that's the idea to get out of the least amount of suffering, the maximum stimulus to grow. Yeah. You can do this in very ineffective ways, as we have all probably proven. Uh, so, the coming back to this Vedana, the um, pleasant feeling uh, connected with the Niramisa Vedana would be aspiration, experience of jhanas, or just feeling that the heart lets go, isn't it? There is a magic when we feel that the heart lets go, when suddenly we, we have stopped being non-smoking smokers and we become non-smokers, non yeah? When the, the urge has gone, when we don't actually need to renounce, when things have fallen off, Renunciation is something you do. This is heroic, but that doesn't mean that you have let go. Yeah? It means that you're trying to let go. And uh, if all goes well, this is then being rewarded by a further initiation, which means this is taken off you and you don't have to keep letting go of it or keep renounce it. It is now no longer creeping up on you. You, know? you don't have to put it down again. It somehow doesn't creep up on you anymore. That would be like letting go. Now that's not something we can do. It's something the heart does. There's a magic, it's a mysterious, it's a powerful process that has something to do with our willingness to let go, but unfortunately just the willingness to renounce doesn't actually do, do the letting go. Yeah. When we stop hankering after things that have left us, uh, when we stop uh, having a little secret niche where we 
have a treasure which we play with, a fantasy or a security, whatever that is. If things go really bad, I can still kill myself. Or she'll always be there for me waiting, if only I call. Or, um, you know, we all we all have little corners in our mind and we we say yes we don't do this but then we haven't let go we keep we preserve it in some way we have a little little cupboards with niches where we preserve things where we preserve our attachments and they give us some form of pleasure or some form of safety or some form of last uh, yeah last ditch resort i know of that place i could always go there so this release would be a very good example of a spiritual feeling that is highly pleasant to sense that your heart has let go of something um, the worldly neither painful nor pleasant and the spiritual neither painful nor pleasant um, are probably not very dramatically interesting for us because uh, they are generally not a problem the neither painful nor pleasant experiences are only insofar as a problem as they can give rise to forms of ignorance. Yeah, if we don't know about this, if we do not recognize the pattern, if we are so engrossed with either the pleasant or the unpleasant. What is the result of feeling? Feeling tone. One produces an individual existence that corresponds to whatever feeling tone one experiences and which may be the consequence either of merit or demerit. This is an interesting one. The Pali term in there is atabhava, individual existence. You know, uh, early Buddhism does a, a number of things how it refers to the individuality. There are two ma major terms. One of them is pugala, that is more or less a temperamentology or a characteriology or a typology. And the other term is the atabhava, the acknowledgement that there is something highly specific about you. Buddhism does not say that you're basically just a heap of five smoldering khandas, yeah, and that there's all there is to you. It recognizes that we are quite individual. And there is much text on this. It's not the famous part of the text, but it's... Uh, quite there, it's in the suttas, many things are said about how people, how people's minds develop. And some minds develop, um, let me think, can I give you an example? Oh, the Buddha says, when you go and practice alone meditation, there's a number of things can happen, you know. Well, he was quite clear on one level that seeking seclusion to meditate is a good thing. But then he was also quite clear that not everybody can do this. So seeking seclusion to meditate and you go through the forest is a bit like you going through a puddle. And depending on whether you're a little cat or whether you're a big elephant, you know, that puddle is a challenge for you or it's not. The elephant just wades through and is not a problem. But the little cat disappears in the puddle. So people going alone to practice meditation meet challenges. And it depends very much on whether they're elephants or little cats, yeah? And the same challenge may be taken in the stride by the elephant who is confidently and resourced and the little kitten may just get lost in the same challenge. So there is an acknowledgement that we do not do this business with the same amount of resources or talent or experience or skill. So there has, uh, this is, you know, this is important and it, it, there are not so many clues in early Buddhist teaching 
that acknowledge developmental necessities. Much of that developmental business was handled, obviously, by the oral tradition, not by the scriptural tradition. So we have to be very grateful for an acknowledgement that the Buddha sees that not all of his men and women are, can do the same things. Yeah. Not all of them need the same tools. And in fact, he was a master at, at comforting or being skillful in choosing tools for very specific people. You know, this poor guy who comes and says, 150 rules is too much. I can't keep 150 rules. Which is interesting. Because the rule set as we have it today is 227. So this guy says, you know, I can't remember 120, 150 rules, let alone keep them. And the Buddha gave him some encouragement and said, look, this is what you do. This is what you do. Stop worrying about this. Or there's this guy who didn't understand impermanence. And the Buddha said, look, just rub this cloth, wash your hands, take a clean white cloth, and then rub it. And the man rubbed it, and after a while the cloth started to get brown, yeah, and grubby. And despite clean hands and despite the clean cloth, somehow uh, the teaching of impermanence started to sink in, that things, even under optimal conditions, will become other, yeah, will show forms of deterioration. So the Buddha was quite skilled, or when he meets Kisa Gotami, who has lost her child, you know, he doesn't say everything is impermanent, just wake up, girl. You know. She asks him to fix her child and say, does he have a medicine? And he, he doesn't say he doesn't have. You know. He doesn't say, I can't make your child alive again. He says, well, uh, I need for this medicine, I need mustard seed. Yeah. But it should come from a house where nobody has died. Yeah, and she rushes off and says, well, that's easy, mustard seed, that will fix it. And she goes off and she asks in every house, people quite happily give her mustard seed. But obviously, when she asks whether somebody has died in that house, people tell her, oh, yeah, yeah, many people have died in this house. Yeah? And so in the course of the day, when she gathers mustard seed and tries to find a place where no such seed where such seed comes from a place where nobody has died. She realizes that in every house she goes into, people have lost loved and dear ones. Yeah. In every house people have died. And while that doesn't make her child alive, it does give her some deeper way of relating, not just to the personal, but to the universal aspect of her experience. At the time, and the Buddha's skillful suggestion, what she tried doing, helped her process this in a way that she couldn't have processed if he had told her straight away. Yeah. This is compassionate. It doesn't fix the child. She still is a grieving mother. And yet, she has a better chance to hold that truth in a different space. She has it after having contact with people and recognized that what she is undergoing right now has happened to other people as well. And she has had more time to let that sink in in a way that takes the personalized sting, me having lost a child. Uh, it, I'm sure it, it will not have felt good after a day, but it will have landed in a different place. And that is a fairly, you know, it didn't give her a sermon and an Abhidharma breakdown on impermanence, on Viparinama and Sankata Dukkha. That's not what he responded to in this moment. But he he met her, and he didn't. He didn't um, pontificate. 
he gave her a task. And in the course of that task, something began to dawn on her. You know, and that is a compassionate and pedagogically effective way. So uh, he was doing a lot of this. But somehow, the texts as we have them, and the teachings as we have them, seem to favor the universal aspect of our experience and not the developmental aspect. They seem to favor the transpersonal dimension, not the personal this, this you know difference we all see when we look at each other yeah. that some people sleep more and others sleep less some people eat more and others eat less some people seem to have lots of energy and others seem to be more tired so uh, such acknowledgments of differing resources differing challenges or just difference in temperament we all need to know it is one of the paradoxes of the Buddhist path that by insisting that we acquaint ourselves with universal truth, universal characteristics, universal stuff, we keep meeting the very personal and individual response we have to this. Yeah. Not because that individuality is per se an essence, but we do manifest in quite different ways. I teach a lot of retreats and every group after three days has a distinctly different feel. You know, I'm always baffled by that. First day it's a heap of 30 or so individuals and, and after, at the latest, two days people coalesce. You know, and I speak into a group rather than into a heap of 30 energetic bundles. You know? There's much world that bundles into a room like this. And after a while, we kind of, there's something coalescing happening. We help each other, we connect. Even though we may get on each other's nerves or we may be irritated or intrigued by each other, we help each other learning about ourselves because it is with others and through others that we learn about ourselves. So consider taking this Vedana practices. Uh, the resolution of this is uh, the cessation of feeling tone uh, is the Noble Eightfold Path. Yeah. So this is a big project. To chunk this big project into today's exercises, please pay particular attention to the ending of, say, breath, to the ending of things, the ending of sound, the ending of taste, the ending of a sensation, and see whether at the end part yeah, after this experience, the event in your experience has subsided, what is the feeling tone at the end part? Is there, is there a feeling tone to start with? Is this pleasant when things end? Is this unpleasant when things end? What hangs together with the pleasant, with the unpleasantness? Just Habitually, we would pay our attention to the beginning, to the arising of things. That's from evolutionary biology that makes a lot of sense. You know, things that happen suddenly and unforeseen ways are things that focus our attention. Danger, for example, opportunity, for example. So we habitually have a tendency to not stay with things that, as they end. So one meditative exercise is to look at particular, at the passing of things. Begin with sound and sensation. Use it while you eat the ending of taste, the ending of a moment, the ending of a, um, a situation. Yeah. 
And then you look, is there a Vedana, is there a feeling tone in that ending? Is there, is there a flavor? Think of Vedana as being the choose in our experience. This is the, this is the, the choosy bit in our experience. Generally, that's what we wish for. We like the pleasant bit. Sometimes we even like the unpleasant bit in some strange way because it gives us a feeling of resistance or energy or vitalizes us. We, we, meet, we meet something reliable, something to either push against or, or lean into or savor. So c consider this and consider how this connects later on. On the left side, we have contact giving rise to Vedana. On the right side, we have Vedana leading into uh, generally impulses and generally mood, flavor, climate of mind. So see whether you can feel some of these connections. So not just Vedana scratch statistic like yesterday, but actually lingering with the Vedana and see what happens. Not lingering as an indulgence, but unafraid of yourself, lingering and seeing how does it go from here? Where does it go from here? Good. Yeah, let's practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.